I on? I got it on, right? Got the button pushed the right way. 1 Corinthians chapter number 3. And we're going to begin in verse 18, read to the end of the chapter this evening. Let's go ahead and read those verses and we'll obviously return to them. 1 Corinthians 3.18, Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you seemeth to be wise in this world, let him become a fool that he may be wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God, for it is written, He taketh the wise in their own craftiness. And again, the Lord knoweth <clears throat> excuse me, the thoughts of the wise that they are vain. Therefore, let no man glory in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come. All are yours and ye are Christ's and Christ is God's. And let's pray. Father, I thank you for this dear assembly of believers and I hope that it is true of us that we have submitted ourselves to a passage like this. So reinforce our thinking and correct us if it is necessary. Give to us grace to submit ourselves to your word. And I pray this for us in Jesus' name. Amen. Part of me wishes that I could figure out a way, and perhaps if I worked harder I could, to deal with the entire body of <clears throat> Paul's thinking, which is to us 1 Corinthians 1, 2, 3, and 4, and, and put them together in one message because that's what they are. There, there, is a, there are components to a common theme. This, of course, is a church that Paul himself has started. He was pastor there for a year and a half. We can read about it in Acts chapter 18. And at that point in Paul's life, he is... Of course, besides the men that labor with him, like Mark and Timothy, he is co-laboring with Apollos. And in Acts 18 and 19, we can read that when Apollos was, for instance, in Ephesus, Paul was in Corinth. And when Paul went to Ephesus, Apollos came to Corinth. And so these people were known, both Paul and Apollos in particular were known by the people at Corinth. They were, in, according to Acts or 1 Corinthians chapter 1, a highly gifted ministry, so that this was a body of people who were more than capable of being a stellar assembly of believers and capable, not because of themselves, but because of the way the Lord had worked in them to be a bright and shining light in the city of Corinth. Um, but what was actually happening was that the Corinthian church was surrendering to Corinthian culture. And rather than being an influence in the world, it was being more influenced by the world. And within the body of the church itself, there are these strong divisions. And the amazing thing, folks, about the division, because... And, and Paul will return to this, by the way, in 1 Corinthians 11. When he talks about the way some people are abusing the Lord's table, that it is necessary 
sometimes for people within the church to, to, to be separated over some of these practices. That if somebody is abusing the Lord's table, that you can't jump into that. You need to back away from that. And that's what he is getting at there. But these people of all things are not fighting over sin and they're not fighting over questionable things. They're not even fighting over whether or not something is a sin or questionable. They're fighting over good things. They're fighting over whether Paul is superior to Apollos, is superior to Peter, or whether Peter is superior to Apollos, is superior to Paul. And they're not having good-natured conversations the way that in an assembly like ours, we might have a conversation about our favorite football teams. They are divided. They are divided and dividing over good people. And Paul defines this as carnality. We've read that in 1 Corinthians 3 earlier the very part, early first part of the chapter, that they are carnal. And what he means is that they're behaving like lost people. These are the kind of things that lost people do. And that's very interesting because Paul never ever, like he does with the Galatians, questioned the, the reality of their salvation. He just points out the flaw in their thinking. And as we will see when we get towards the end or towards the middle of chapter 4, Paul will add to this that their carnality is, and he never says whether it's the cause of or the result of, but it is certainly in tandem with their human pride. They are a very self-assured, very... Confident is not the right word. They are very arrogant people. They are inflated. And this is something that Paul is not really, he's identified in his letter to them in chapter 4, but it has been something that has been of concern to him from the very beginning. And so right out of the gate, before he can deal with anything else, he has to deal with this. Before we can before we can have a serious conversation about real sin in the assembly, and we know from chapter 5 and chapter 6 and chapter 7, all the way through to the, to, till we get into the spirit, even into the spiritual gifts, that there is real sin going on in the assembly. But before we can deal with sin, we, we need to deal with ourselves. And, and we need to get oriented rightly with reference to who we are and who God is and how we fit. And so he goes after their disunity, which is being fueled by their carnality, which is working in conjunction with their arrogance or their pride. And so he had cautioned them that they were to build carefully And that 
It wasn't going to be until God judged the work that was done that anybody would know what kind of work it really was. In this passage that we just read this evening, verses 18 through 22 or 23, Paul now issues to them two commands, right? You're a very gifted church, and you're a believing body of people, but you're divided, and this division is very grievous. And, and we'll come back to this, folks, time and time again. If we ask, well, what's the real problem with a church being divided over this? And the real problem is that as soon as somebody magnifies Paul at the expense of Apollos, it is God who is slighted. Or as soon as somebody magnifies Apollos at the expense of Paul, it is God who is slighted. Because God is the worker, the real worker. He is the master and the Lord, and he is the one who gives the increase, and he is the one who enables the worker, and he is the one who sends them to the field. So what is really at stake here, and Paul keeps coming back to this, right? he keeps coming back to, in effect, putting the Lord before them, that, that they keep spinning off their axis and getting focused upon some person as if that person is the secret to their Christianity. So two commands. <clears throat> In chapter 3, verses 18 through 23, the first command is this, verses 18 and tw through 20, do not deceive yourself. Do not deceive yourself. Let no man, 1 Corinthians 3.18, deceive himself. Now this is something that we do not like to think about ourselves. We do not like to think that we deceive ourselves. We like to think that we are completely immune to being deceived. That what we see, what we perceive, what we take in through the senses, what we reach in the way of conclusions, these are spot on. And, and it's just not possible that we could be wrong. But, but Paul issues this command a number of times in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 6, 9, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived. Do, do not think that it's going to be any other way. The unrighteous don't get in. 1 Corinthians 15, 33, Be not deceived. Evil communications corrupt good manners. Don't be deceived. The things you think about, talk about, and socialize with and engage with if they're the wrong kinds of things, they will turn you. Don't, don't think differently about that. He said in the, in the letter to Galatians, Galatians 6, 7, be not deceived, God is not mocked. Don't, don't think differently about this. My wife and I were not talking about this passage this morning at, at all in any way. Didn't make me to church. We were just, we were having a conversation and, we were actually having a conversation about health and, and food studies. And I was talking to her about a 
book that I that I had read, and it's a good book if you like that kind of thing. It's called In Defense of Food by Michael Pollan, and it's it's pretty helpful. But he he spends a large part of the first part of the book making two points. Number one is that we really we really can't explain food very well. We we know what it is to eat it. We can we can put it under a microscope, so to speak, and tell all of its parts. But we can't take those parts and put it together and make food out of it. We don't have that ability. It's a great mystery to us. And, and the other thing that he spends a lot of time talking about is that food studies are notoriously inaccurate in large part because people are perpetually, habitually deceptive about what they eat. And unless you, in effect, lock them in a cage and feed them a meter diet, we are completely unreliable in reporting, well, I don't eat that much. I, I don't know how I got to this size. I don't eat that much. We are incredibly prone to self-deception. Ask anybody who believes that that Nigerian prince is really going to make them rich. And we are particularly prone to be deceived spiritually. So do not be deceived. That's the command. Do not be deceived. This is a very real danger. And we say, how would I avoid being deceived? And the answer to that, folks, is really very simple. Put your trust in the word of the Lord. It's just that simple. Trust God, not yourself. If God says this is the way something is, and we think, I'm not sure that's the way it is, Right? then our options are to believe ourselves or to believe the Lord. And we are notoriously simple to deceive. Do not be deceived. Back to verse number 18. <clears throat> if any man among you seemeth to be wise in this world, <clears throat> let him become a fool that he may be wise, which is not gobbledygook or doublespeak. Paul is making several points. Number one, and that is, it is going to take on your part a willful, conscious, deliberate step to embrace God's wisdom instead of the world's wisdom. If we don't make a conscious decision to do it, we will just be carried along by the wisdom of the world all the time. Because it's the world in which we live. And we are subject to its philosophies Non-stop. The word seemeth in verse number 18 has the idea of making a judgment. In other words, Paul is making this point, right? It's like Paul says, now let me talk to those of you who think you have an idea, who have come to the conclusion that you, that you know how to get along in the world, that you know what it takes to get along in the world. Let me, let me talk to you. To those of you who think you know what it takes to get ahead in the world, you are going to have to, in effect, chop yourself off from that way of thinking. And you're going to have to become a fool in the eyes of the world so that you might be truly wise. 
Because, folks, the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of the Lord cannot coexist side by side as systems of operation. They do exist side by side in this world. But you cannot employ both of them. You cannot be worldly wise in some areas and biblically wise in other areas and, and make that the, you know, the, the modus operandi of your life. Let him become a fool. And, and without getting all bogged down into the grammar there, it is a middle voice imperative. You must do this, but you must do it. You must come to this place where you are consciously and willfully embracing the wisdom of the Lord. Not in human methodologies. And then what Paul does is in verse number 19, he begins to quote the Old Testament. Verse number 19, for the wisdom of this world is foolish with God, foolishness with God, for it is written, he taketh the wise in their own craftiness. <clears throat> now if you want to turn to it, I've got it, I've just put the notes here in my outline, but if you want to turn to Job chapter 5, Eliphaz is doing the talking. And Eliphaz is giving... <clears throat> Job advice, right? He's weighing in with his position. I'm going to begin in verse number 8. Eliphaz says, Job 5.8, I would seek unto God, and unto God would I commit my cause, which doeth great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number. This, he's talking about God here. And this is being quoted. Eliphaz is not off track here. Who giveth rain upon the earth, and sendeth waters upon the fields to set up on high those that be low, that those which mourn may be exalted to safety. He disappointeth the devices of the crafty so that their hands cannot perform their enterprise. He taketh the wise in their own craftiness, and the counsel of the froward is carried headlong. They meet with darkness in the daytime and grope in the noonday as in the night. But he saveth the poor from the sword from their mouth and from the hand of the mighty, so the poor hath hope, and iniquity stoppeth her mouth. Behold, happy is the man whom God correcteth. Therefore despise not thou the chastening of the Almighty. Now, the point now, right? I mean, what is Eliphaz arguing and what is Paul understanding about what Eliphaz is arguing, it is this. It is that God manages the affairs of this world to his own satisfaction, to his own way, contrary to human expectations. You know, I think it was Mike Tyson, the boxer, who said one time, everybody has a plan till they get punched in the face. So everybody, everybody gets out of bed with a plan. And then God goes, well, but it's just not going to be that way for you today. And so Paul captures the essence of it 
in 1 Corinthians 3.19, for it is written, he taketh the wise in their own craftiness, Job 5.13. And again, Paul is repeating something that he's argued, right? The wisdom of the world is foolishness to God. God. If God were to have a bad day, it would be superior to the world's best day. If God were to have a weakness, it would be superior to the world's strength. And God is so wise and so competent and so capable that what he does is let people kind of, he lets them off the leash, so to speak, to run wild with their own abilities and intellects only to trap them and capture them in their own devices. And folks, this is what he will do. And if we go, well, it doesn't look like it's happening. Well, but the, but the chapter hasn't ended yet. And then he quotes, going back to 1 Corinthians 3.18, and again, verse number 20, and again, the Lord knoweth the thoughts of the wise, that they are vain. And this time he quotes from Psalm 94. And again, if you wish to turn to it, I'm going to begin in verse number 6 of Psalm 94. Talking about the wicked, the psalmist writes, they slay the widow and the stranger and murder the fatherless. Yet they say the Lord shall not see, neither shall the God of Jacob regard it. Understand ye brutish among the people and ye fools, when will ye be wise? He that planteth the ear, shall he not hear? He that formed the eye, shall he not see? Would you really think that a God who could make the human eyes blind? I mean, not you, but would people really think that the God who created the human ear cannot hear what people say? Or that the God who created the human eye cannot see what people do? Verse number 10. He that chastises the heathen, shall not he correct he that teacheth man knowledge shall not he know. The Lord knoweth the thoughts of men, that man, that they are vanity. Blessed is the man whom thou chastenest, O Lord, and teachest him out of thy law, that thou mayest give him rest from the days of adversity until the pit be digged for the wicked. For the Lord will not cast off his people, neither will he forsake his inheritance. Right? So what Paul does here in both of these passages, what God has Paul do in these passages, is he goes back into Old Testament poetry and he recovers passages that are making two points. If you go back and read Job 5, if you go back and read Psalm 94, God is making two points. Number one, it is always helpful for those who trust him because he helps them. And number two, it is always detrimental to those who don't trust him because he, he gets them. Now you take that, folks, you can kind of go back and then you can read that back into verse number, verse number 18. Let no man deceive himself. Right, go back and read the Old Testament. Go, I mean, when you go back to Job, you're just going back to about not almost the beginning of time. And, and then you're, you're in the Psalms and you're in the kingdom era. We're going back a long time. Don't be deceived. Verse 
don't think that God is different. It's not any different. Right? There really are folks. There are lots of things different in the New Testament from the Old Testament. But this is not different. God is the worker. He tells us what to do. He tells us how he wants it done. We are his laborers. He is the master. And if we just do what we're told, the blessings are ours. And if we cut across the grain and try to do it differently in a way that we think is best, he has a way of dealing with that. It, he, he, he takes action at that point. So when it comes to the ministry, that's really what we're talking about here. When it comes to the, when it comes to the work of the ministry of the building of the body of Christ, Right, then, then there are two obligations that are laid at our feet, folks. Obligation is, number one is, to by design become a fool in the eyes of the world. By design, become a fool in the eyes of the world. And by design, to use God's message and God's methods, by design. And that brings us in in verses 21 through 23 to the second command. Here's, here's the command then, verse number 21. Therefore, let no man glory in men. Let no man glory in men. When, and when you're reading the word glory in our King James Bible, and I don't remember off the top of my head how the ESV translates it or NASB, but the idea is boast or brag. Let no man brag in men. And of course, remember, folks, this is, this is the division. Good men, Paul and Peter and Apollos and even Jesus himself, good men. Why should you not brag in men, verse number 21? Because everything belongs to you. Why would, you, why would you tie yourself to Paul's coattails? If I can put it in this kind of crude language, why would you tie yourself to Paul's coattails when you can have Paul and Apollos and Peter? They're all yours. We get the benefit of all of them. And you'll notice there, folks, that Paul really doesn't just want to limit himself to men, verse number 21, for all things are yours. Well, what do you mean? Verse 22, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all are yours. And we say, well, what does that mean? I, it just means exactly what it says, folks, that we are the possessor of all men and all life and all death and all things present and all things to come. Anything that you could imagine that has to do with life apart from sin is yours. And this is because, verse 23, you're Christ's. Paul is in Christ and Apollos is in Christ. And the most insignificant believer on the planet at this very moment is in the same Christ. And the most unheard of, anonymous believer in the world 
I mean, if we just wanted to keep it to ministers, and Paul doesn't do that, if we just wanted to keep it to ministers, the most obscure pastor in the most obscure field in the world today belongs to the same Christ that Paul did. And I would just refer you back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse number 2. The theme of the book is mapped out in 1 Corinthians 1-2. Under the church of God, which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified, set apart in Christ, called to be saints, with all them that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, both theirs and ours. He is not only the Lord of the Corinthians, but of all his people everywhere and every place. And then Paul, of course, is not done, 1 Corinthians 15 or 1 Corinthians 3.23. Ye are Christ's, and Christ is God's. And Paul is not undoing the doctrine of the Trinity nor calling it into question. There are a number of passages that treat them as fully and exactly equals the Father, the Son, the Spirit. But there are many other passages that are not in denying of their equality, but are addressing the distinction in their functions, and this is one of them. We belong to God because we belong to Christ, because he is the mediator of the new covenant, folks. We have no accessibility to God apart from Christ. We have no blessing from God apart from Christ. He's the mediator of our covenant. This is why there's no way to the Father but by Him. This, it's just not possible. And that's, that's the idea that Paul is using here. Not that, not that Christ is somehow inferior to God, but that Christ is our access to God. And Paul does this. He does it here in 1 Corinthians 3.23. He writes in 1 Corinthians 11.3, I would have you to know that the head of every man is Christ, the head of the woman is the man, the head of Christ is God. Again, he's talking about function. When he's talking about men and women, so he's talking about there. He's talking about the way you function. We dealt with that in Sunday school last week. Not going to go back and revisit it, but we're not the, we're the same in our human our humanity. We're equal in our human essence, but we're not equal in our tasks. And God and Jesus were equal in their essence as deity, but they were not equal in their tasks. There was a father, there was a son. The father gave the instructions, the son obeyed the instructions. That was how they functioned. We have a similar representation in 1 Corinthians 15, 28. To me, one of the great mystery passages of the New Testament. When all things shall be subdued unto him, Christ, then shall the son also be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. But what Paul is doing here is in part reminding them of unity, right? That although there is distinction, and Paul will come back to this time and time again. He will talk about this when he talks about the gifts, right? We're all in the same body. We all have the same master, but we don't all have the same function. And that should not be a cause of disunity, but should instead be a cause of great unity, 
and the Father and the Son are united, but they do different things. So, Paul is making the point, stop being divisive about this. Make the choice to become a God's fool. Embrace his wisdom and stop boasting in men. Stop treating men, any men. Well, I would hope that none of you would ever, right? And I recognize that I am greatly loved by many people. But I, if you are blessed, it is not me. It's just not. It's the Lord. And if you turn on your radio to your favorite radio preacher, and we all have them, and that's not the problem. It is not them. It is the Lord. So don't boast in the man. Boast in the God who made the man. That's the point Paul's making. All right, I'm going to stop there tonight. And we will continue.